Hello and welcome back to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Haley Lemieux, and this week we will explore what drives China's foreign policy and how China's foreign policy has evolved in the last decade. To learn more, I spoke to Dr. Roger Kramers, a professor at the Oxford China Center, Mathieu Duchatel, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, Moritz Rudolph, a researcher for the Mercator Institute for China Studies, and Angela Stanzel, a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. In this podcast, you will hear pieced together excerpts from these interviews, which we will turn to now. First, let's listen to Professor Kramers characterize China's foreign policy. China's foreign policy for a very long time, since the beginning of the Deng Xiaoping era, have been characterized by a sort of principle which is called in Chinese Tao Guang Yang Hui, which means to bide the limelight, to avoid high profile, but to get something done. And so the idea of that foreign policy was to create an external environment that would be increasingly conducive to China's project of domestic economic and social reform, while at the same time not upsetting the apple cart too much. For a very long time, China has not been a power that sought to fundamentally change the nature of global politics or fundamentally change the nature of global governance regimes. And we see that this is even lasting up to the mid, the early and mid-2000s, where China joins, for instance, the World Trade Organization. For a very long time, China would not be a party that would have a very strong voice in, say, organizations like the United Nations. China has not been a country that came in and sort of made a broad use of its veto powers, that um, had a very, very strong interventionist agenda abroad. In fact, when you look, for instance, at China's uh, foreign military activity, China still doesn't have a military that is capable of power projection across the world. It is getting regionally very strong, but that is in order to deal with its regional challenges, as well as to increasingly ensure that it has some measure of control over its home waters, which where traditionally the United States Navy has seen that as more of its sphere of influence. And so for a very long time, the big element of Chinese foreign policy was to create an environment in which China's economic project could thrive. More recently, we start seeing that there are a couple of cracks in that, and that China has become not necessarily more vociferous, but that certainly we've started paying more attention to some perennial bugbears of China's foreign policy that are very strongly regional, and that China has designated as its core interests. And those would be Tibet, Taiwan, increasingly its position in the South China Sea, and its relationship with Japan. I would characterize China's foreign policy today under Xi Jinping as evolving into three different circles. This is Mathieu Duchatel from the European Council on Foreign Relations. The, the first one is regional, and there's been a lot of debates in foreign policy circles uh, during these past five years regarding Chinese foreign policy being assertive. So assertiveness has been uh, has been a key word to describe China's foreign policy, and when using assertiveness to describe it, what we have in mind is clearly China's policy in East Asia. And in East Asia, it's sometimes assertive, sometimes not. It has changed over the past five years. But the main direction is that in East Asia, China's foreign policy is characterized by geopolitical interests, security interests, and strategic rivalry with the US. And I think it explains to a large degree, Chinese actions in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, and also to some degree 
in the Taiwan Straits. So China's foreign policy in East Asia is determined by this security dilemma and by strategic mistrust towards the US. So that's the first circle. And then you have China's foreign policy globally. And I think it has tremendously changed uh, over the past 10 years. And the driving force for this change has been the globalization of China's economic and security interests. China's foreign policy now, when looking beyond East Asia, is really about supporting the expansion of China's economic interests and uh, Chinese trade. So that's the second circle, how to protect China's overseas interests. And this is really recent. You know, this has been included in China's foreign policy documents in 2012 and 2013. So it's pretty new and it's a work in progress. China is adjusting its foreign policy in order to protect China's overseas interests. And then there's a third circle, which is hotly debated among experts, uh, among diplomats, and that's the area of China's contribution to global governance, what China does you know, in support of uh, the world order uh, beyond East Asia, beyond, beyond China's security and economic interest, what China does at the UN, what China does in international organizations. And, uh, and on that, we have, uh, we have a mixed record, but uh, I think that there's a consensus that China is um, selective in the international organization it chooses to support, but sometimes uh, makes very valuable contributions. And one example is the UN, China's support for peacekeeping, for example, China's increasing involvement in international security operations, for example, in the Gulf of Aden, but also things that China is not doing, for example, supporting a very strong commitments to fight climate change with clear commitments and, and a clear roadmap? Well, I would say it has become increasingly assertive in, in recent years. This is Moritz Rudolph, a researcher for the Mercator Institute for China Studies. And it's um, possible to see that China has already in the past engaged in um, specific regions, but right now it appears to be part of a bigger overall strategy that is emerging. I think a lot of it is, relates to the economic situation in China. There is this interest of creating stable economic growth, and part of that is a, um, a diversification of um, trade routes and of inner energy import routes and energy partners. And at the same time, it is increasingly in China's interest to invest in infrastructure throughout Eurasia. And by the same token, there's an increasing interest of China for stability in the uh, neighboring countries of, of China when we look towards the West. And um, if we look towards the East, there are different policy goals depending on the region in North Korea and the Korean Peninsula. It's mostly about stability and uh, denuclearization of um, the North Korean Peninsula. And in the South China Sea, it's more about China's core interest to have maintain control um, over the, the South China Sea. Especially under Xi Jinping, there has been this approach to basically um, resurrect China's power in the world again. This is the language he uses. This is Angela Stancil, a policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He also, when he came into power, started to speak of the China dream, which also implied that China wanted to be a much more powerful nation than before. Eventually, 
I think the the actual issue for China is the U.S., the United States. The United States are the most powerful country in the world, and they have been also a powerful player in Asia. They have been the protector of, of um, the smaller neighbors of China, such as Japan or Taiwan. And eventually, I think China wants to basically push the U.S. out of Asia so they can become a hegemon. So everything that is happening in Asia in terms of tensions and disputes or confrontations or provocations actually somehow is also motivated by standing up towards the U.S., pushing the U.S. out of Asia. I think they don't want to be a hegemon, and I, don't, I think they also don't want to be perceived as a hegemon. I think from their perspective, it's more about having a rejuvenation of the, of the Chinese nation. In, in the past, China used to be a, the, the center of the civilization in East and Southeast Asia. So I think from the, from the Chinese perspective, it's more about moving to a former situation, which was um, before um, Western imperialism. And I think what the Chinese side is quite um, interested in is having a rise, but at the same point of time, not um, repeating the mistakes of, of Germany or, or Japan before World War II. So they want to, of course, get back to a, to a powerful position in, in Asia since they're the, the, the largest country. But um, at the same point of time, I think they are quite concerned that they will be perceived as a hegemon, which could not be in, in China's best interest if it would lead to, to, to more conflicts. But in recent years, I think, especially in the South China Sea, there are signs for, um, for increasing tension. And for, for the Chinese, when it comes to the South China Sea, it's just a core domestic, it's just a domestic issue. So um, for them, they wouldn't um, make the argument that it's part of a hegemonic agenda. They just say that it is part of their, their own territory. It bears remembering that while what we are seeing in the South China Sea seems to be escalation to some degree, this is a point that has always been part of what China itself identified as its, as its core interests. And it is perhaps very easily forgotten, but in 1997, there were war games in response to a Taiwanese move towards increased autonomy. And the upshot of that was that there was actually a fair bit of military tension between the US uh, and, and the PRC at that time. Now, that was more of an episodic affair where what, what seems to be happening now in the South and East China Sea seems to be more of a sustained effort to change facts on the ground so as to start to balance the status quo in China's favor. Now, why is that? There's a number of reasons. One, it is perhaps premature to say that we are seeing the end of the policy of Taoguang Yanghui, the, the end of that policy of biding the limelight, not having too much of a high profile in international affairs. But it certainly is the case that as China's clout in the world has grown, there has either been a recognition that it now has more foreign interests and therefore needs to be more present on the global stage, or an idea that if we have this influence, we might as well use it more for our own benefit um, also domestically, or that we're in a situation where increasingly it is recognized by some elements within China, and this happens in different sectors, that the international structure as it exists now, in fact, isn't a global governing structure, but it is what the Western 
architecture morphed into after the disappearance of, of the Soviet Union, and that this therefore might be an order that China had no role in creating and is not necessarily served well by. So apart from the South China Sea, what we're seeing in some areas is that China is now increasingly trying to either gain more influence in traditional venues of global governance, like the international financial institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, you name it, or finding that it is actually rebuffed in those efforts. It is starting to set up venues of its own which parallel uh, those institutions, but obviously China has much more influence in them. And perhaps the best example of that would be the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Well, China has interest to defend. China has also an ideology. I think it's um, very important when studying China's foreign policy to remember that you know ideology ideology is important. Ideology matters, and the starting point for China's foreign policy ideologically is the perception that the world order is unfairly, unjustly dominated by the West and by the U.S. So um, you know when you start looking into Chinese foreign policy debates, uh, when you read uh, what Chinese experts write or when you speak with them, I think there's always this kind of ambivalence regarding what is the status quo. Um, you know, uh, the status quo in East Asia is one thing, the status quo globally is another thing. So in East Asia, um, the perception, the mainstream perception, and also the you know, the, the policy is based on, on the idea that the status quo is unfair, um, that the U.S. dominance or supremacy in East Asian security affairs is um, detrimental to Chinese interests. Uh, I think, you know, even though President Xi Jinping once said that the Pacific Ocean is big enough for the U.S. and China, uh, I think that this, there's the perception that the U.S., web of alliances with, with Japan, with Korea, the U.S. support for Taiwan is detrimental to Chinese interests. So the status quo needs to be changed. But the status quo internationally uh, is a status quo whereby China has a seat at the U.N. Security Council of veto power. Uh, China is one of the very few nuclear powers. So to some degree, the status quo internationally also works in China's interests. And this has enabled China to rise to great power status uh, in the past 10 years. So, you know, there's the idea that China needs also to contribute to the international order to, to support the status quo. Uh, but the question there is less, you know, the, the intent and the perception in China than, you know, the concrete contribution. And one very uh, striking example is the question of China's contribution to Let's say, for example, security in the Middle East. There's an interest in China for stability in the Middle East. There's also an interest in China in a Middle East that is not, not um, uh, you know, uh, controlled by terrorists, controlled by the Islamic State. Uh, a Chinese national has been executed by the Islamic State, but China's contribution to the fight against the Islamic State is... is uh, not proportional to China's status and power in international politics. 
when you look at the world through a Western lens, we look at the Middle East and say, obviously, this is a global problem. And there are many reasons why we say that. From the United States' point of view, there's a close connection with Israel. From the European point of view, there is proximity of the Middle East, geographical, which then translates into the streams of refugees that we've had to deal with. Um, and China simply isn't involved uh, in that space to the same extent. If at some point it should happen, for instance, that the lack of stability moves over into countries like Saudi Arabia and it starts to threaten China's energy supply, then uh, we're starting to have a different discussion. But for the moment, the Middle East, qua Middle East, isn't necessarily very high on China's um, priority list. That, that is different from, for those countries that do border China. So, for instance, we do see that Xi Jinping has made some very public statements, for instance, about Afghanistan, which um, perhaps a Chinese leader would not have done even five or ten years ago. Part of it, therefore, is also trying to bring Chinese concerns higher on the agenda. And this is where we start seeing interesting things. So whatever else one might think about the Chinese political structure, when we talk about global challenges like climate change, this is not something that's up for debate in Chinese politics. Ch uh, climate change is accepted as a fact, as a reality. There is no climate change denial that is given any platform in Chinese politics. And so, you know, even taking into account the fact that, that China still needs to do a lot more to come to the forefront in terms of green tech development and so on and so forth, at least from a political point of view, there is huge support to move forward on both politically increasing deals on climate change that are reflective of changing global economic structures, and on the other hand, also for China to become a much bigger supplier of green technology, of innovation services, uh, and so on and so forth. And that final thought wraps up our podcast for this week. If you would like to hear the full original interviews for each of our guests, the links are in the description of the podcast. If you want to share your own thoughts on this topic, we are always accepting submissions to our blog at oxirsoc.com. We also have an exciting new daily news bulletin that you can sign up to on our website. Thank you so much to all of our guests, to our sponsor Morgan Stanley, and to podcastthemes.com for our intro and outro music. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Until next time.